0: Welcome to Scriptures with Momentary. I'm the mom Linda Weiniger, and we are now in Revelation in the New Testament in the Bible. And we are gonna be covering, we're just gonna start with Revelation one. I was gonna say up until five, but I actually don't even know if we'll get to read all to five because I might split it up. So Let's just go with that. And this was written. Um, let's see who wrote this book. This the Apostle John wrote this book. He's the same John who wrote the Gospel according to Saint John, as well as First, Second, and Third John that we just read. So John was foreordained to write this book. You can see this in First Nephi. Chapter 14, verse 18 to 27, which is kind of cool. And then when and where did John write this book? So John wrote this book while he resided on the island of Patmos. Patmos was a small island, only 34 square miles in the Aegean Sea. He was believed to be there in exile due to the severe persecution that Christians were experiencing Tradition states that Roman authorities had banished John to the island under the crime of prophecy. It is believed that John wrote this book sometime between AD 80 and AD 100. So who was John writing to? John was writing to both the Christians in his day as well as those in the latter days. See, uh, verse 25, chapter 14, 19 to 27. Um, And then in chapters 1 to 3, John addresses the seven churches in Asia minor. Interesting. Okay. So, um, before we get that, um, there was a weekly teaching tip that I like to include and funny that they would, that the redheaded hostess would include their own teaching tips is to go through and purchase their, uh, Book of Mormon, um, study guides that they have for adults, children, and teens, and even kids. So I was like, of course, it makes sense. And I actually did order them. So (laughs) there you go. You'll be looking forward to those. Um, And the benefits of these, just so that, you know, since dad's the only subscriber currently, you can see... So the, go- the guidebook for adults is going to have a place to record your insights and then write just the right amount of tips, maps, and explanations, questions to ponder, beautiful artwork and quotes, and a guide to take you through the entire year. And then for teens, it's going to be helps teens study and understand the Book of Mormon, has space to record what they're learning, designed with colors and images that teens will be drawn to, tools to help them slow down and let the spirit teach them, includes timelines, people to know, and study tips, and then the art. That was created just for teens. And then the children one is filled with activities to help them come to know and love the Book of Mormon. Tools and explanations to help them understand, helps them be in the scriptures, learn important study skills. Includes art, of course, that captures their attention and helps children develop the habit of personal, independent scripture study. And then, I don't know, I can't remember if I got the one for children three to six for Flora, but I'm hoping I did now all of a sudden. Um, An activity book for non and early readers includes activities geared to young ages. Um, Young children learn stories from the Book of Mormon as well as essential doctrines helps young children begin to develop scripture study skills and learn the habit of consistent study. Now, I may or may not have gotten the guidebook for the children because I know the church also has like the Book of Mormon book, which is pretty fun with those stories. So we could easily do that. Okay, so we're now going to start our Revelation chapter 1. And there's some Joseph Smith translations. I'm going to try to read them in. Hopefully it makes sense when I'm reading them in. All right. The revelation of John, a servant of God, which was given unto him of Jesus Christ to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to, come to pass, that he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bore record, who bare record of the word of God, and of t- the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of his, this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. So they mean like when you he- read words, and then you keep them, that means that you understand them, right? Because you're doing what you just learned. For the time of the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now this is a testimony of John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Who hath sent forth his angel from before his throne to testify unto those who are the seven servants over the seven churches. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of kings, of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen behold he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierce him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him even so amen so that's up until we just finished verse 7 so we'll interject some commentary principle is why we should trust jesus he's the first and the last so notice the joseph smith translation changes the text to say the revelation of john which was given unto him of jesus christ this is a record of a revelation or vision about the history and future of the world other prophets have had similar visions but john alone was foreordained to write his vision which would go out among the world and blessed is he that readeth this prophecy. So we are blessed because we read it. The seven churches that John is referring to are the seven congregations of of saints that lived in the cities mentioned in verse 11. So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and... The Joseph Smith translation clarifies that John is specifically writing to the seven servants, or those who presided over these congregations. As part of John's introduction, he speaks of Jesus Christ, who has made them kings and priests unto God. This is a reference to higher ordinances received in the temple. This shows that John was writing this epistle to faithful church leaders who had received these ordinances and would have known what he was saying. At this point in time, the apostasy was spreading throughout Christianity. And for those saints that were remaining faithful, despite all they had witnessed and experienced, even John himself was in exile at the time. The message in Revelation is that Christ will come in clouds and every eye shall see him. No matter what persecution they were experiencing, ultimately Christ will triumph. Okay. So now we're on verse eight and it says, For saith he, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in the book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke, that spake to me, Or that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Ooh, that was verse 16, by the way. So, uh, Revelation uh, 8 says that I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The Savior is repeatedly referred to in these chapters by this title. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Similar to A and Z in the English alphabet. Just as Jesus Christ was, the first, was with the Father in the beginning, he will also be here at the end when he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland added, These letters from the Greek suggest the universal role of Jesus from the beginning of the world to this end. But he but he ought to be Alpha and Omega in particular in the particular as well. Our personal beginning and our individual end. that model by which we shape our journey of three score years and 10 and the standard by which we measure it as its conclusion. In every choice we make, we ought to be he ought to be our point of reckoning, our chartered course, our only harbor ahead. He should be for us individually what he is for all men collectively, the very brack the very brackets of existence, the compass of our privilege. We should not stray outside him. we should not want to try. I am alpha and Omega. Unquote. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, Enzyme, September 1974. I gotta read that one. Okay, and I love that quote because yesterday we were, Dad and I were watching this guy talk about how he's like, I don't know if I'm a morning morning scripture study person or an evening scripture study person kind of thing, and morning is so hard, and Evening is so hard for me, but I love this quote because it's not about morning or evening. It's about beginning and end. And we need to start our day with the Lord and end our day with the Lord. That is is where our peace will come. That is how we can live our lives. And that is a perfect measuring stick. Not that when do we do scripture study? but more like how do we start our day and how do we end our day? Did we start it with remembering him and did we end it with remembering him and how we remember him and putting that into action changes for each of us. And how do we do that? Okay. So I'm going to start or I'm going to end right there. We finished reading verse 16 in chapter one of revelation and we're on john's vision of jesus christ revelation 19 or 9 to 20 on page one okay so here's the commentary there says this is a record of john's vision of jesus christ he received on the island of patmos notice how john describes something indescribable how can he convey in words something that is not like anything else on earth he uses comparisons to try to capture what there are no words for John keeps saying, like, like unto, as if, and as the. First, John sees Christ and seven candlesticks. The seven candlesticks represent the seven churches that John is writing to. Elder Bruce Armer Conkey describes candlesticks carry light, and they do not create it. Their function is to make it available, not to bring it into being. So by using seven candlesticks to portray the seven churches to whom John is now to give counsel, the Lord is showing that his congregations on earth are to carry his light to the world. End quote. Um, Doctrinal New Testament commentary. Okay. Then John seeks to describe Jesus Christ. And these are some of those words that were descriptive of him. His clothing. Jesus was dressed as a king. And priest, hold on, I'm like trying to record my walking. Okay. Um, Jesus was a scribe, was dressed as a king and priest. His girdle was not tied up like a man who is ready for action, but was wrapped around his chest or waist as one who is peacefully reigning. His features, his hair was white as wool. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. One of the features of fire is the ability to consume and purify. The Lord is the consuming fire. All that is impure will ultimately be purged. His feet, they were like metal that was glowing from the intense heat of a furnace. The altar of sacrifice was made of brass. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Brass is also a strong metal. Jesus was the ultimate strength. His voice was like a sound of many waters, strong, powerful, majestic. And I would add peaceful sometimes. Well, all the time when I'm at the beach and the waves crash, honestly, no matter how the waves come, it's always sounds so peaceful. I mean, we love listening to ocean waves and things like that to go to sleep. Um, Or at least I do. I know we listen to, like, the white noise just because that's consistent. But I would love to switch it to, like, uh, water and the beach. One time we went to the beach in Corpus Christi um, in California. And we stayed on the beach. We were able to camp out on the beach. and It was amazing. And we could sleep to ocean waves. And it was just awesome. It wasn't awesome when we woke up and it was like a sandstorm. But it was awesome. Um, And that was when the boys were little. So, Flora, you weren't born yet. Okay, and then a two-edged sword. Christ's words, which are eternal truths and prophecies, are what he will use to conquer wickedness. Two-edged is something that can help you or hurt you. It can be favorable or unfavorable, and depending on how it is used upon you. That's true. And sometimes even if it is unfavorable, it's awesome, okay? So for example, I just got my root canal yesterday and it was something I chose to do. Mind you, I'm going to be very mindful of that choice in the future. Somehow in my mind, I thought it would be quick and easy and well, maybe not quick, but like at least easier. And I didn't know how much pain I was going to experience Afterwards, and originally the reason why I needed a root canal was because my tooth was hurting so bad It was taking over pain in my head and everything and it was just like insane amount of pain And so then I was like, let's get a root canal So like over a week later, I was finally able to get an appointment. He went in did the x-rays. It was true so He went in dug everything out. I had three canals that needed digging out and cleaning and stuff and then they fill it and everything my mouth was open for about three hours and with flora she came with me because nobody was available to help grandma was gone dad was working finn Finn and faust were at school and so i had to just take her and she did so great in fact the doctor was like i've never seen a child behave so well and she was playing angry birds and watching netflix she was fantastic so anyway um after we were done I thought for sure, like, this is going to be good, and oh, wow, my head was hurting so bad, I almost passed out a couple times, and I was just so, like, did not feel good. I couldn't chew anything, not even on my right side, because the pain was so intense. My jaw was killing. I had to, like, massage my jaw, and here's the worst part. I chose to do all kinds of work stuff yesterday, and it was not a good choice, so if you ever get a root canal, okay, please schedule yourself for like a little mini vacation that you're not going to do anything except sleep and drink smoothies and do nothing. <laughs> and if it, if it's one of you guys and you guys are older and you guys have kids, you could be like, mom, I need your help. Cause I have a root canal. I will take your kids. I promise. And we will hang out so that you can get some rest. Okay. Hopefully I'll be able to, and I won't be getting a root canal at the same time, (laughs) but hopefully you guys never have to get a root canal and then it'll be fine. Um, but anyway, the pain was so intense, but see, I chose to do that. And here's the thing two edge, meaning yes, it's going to help me to get that pain, to get that, um, infection removed. And in the end it will be better, but first it needs to cut me And it needs to do all these things before it will be something that is going to heal me. So it might hurt a little when we're trying to get rooted things out of our bodies and out of our minds and out of our habits and out of our system, but then it will be good and we'll continue to use his words to bless us, to comfort us, to uh, help us. And so... Yep, sometimes those words can be real deep and pierce and be really bad. But in the end, he's doing us a favor by rooting out those things that are bad in us so that we can continue to live more fully and, and live in joy, you know? Okay, um, and then John, who knew the Savior personally, was so overcome by what he saw that he fell at the Savior's feet as dead then the gentle response of Jesus Christ was to lay his hand upon him and say, fear not. I am the first and the last. So could like anyone ever give a more powerful statement that would give us much peace and comfort as this? Only Christ can do that. So... The vision continues. Okay, so we're on 17 to 20. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the servant of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Okay, so that's the end of Revelation 1. Super powerful. Uh, I love that he said to him that he has the keys of hell and of death. Like, it's not Satan who has those keys. He is the torturer. And sometimes we're like, oh, we're going to be tortured and, and go to hell and stuff like that. But if Christ has the keys of hell, how is that going to happen? He can bind Satan. We have the power To bind Satan in our lives because of Christ. Because he has those keys. Anyways, so powerful scriptures. Okay. um, The Lord instructs John on what to write and what specifically to write to each of the seven church leaders. Um, he is holding these church leaders in his right hand, and he's walking in the midst of the congregations. What a beautiful message that he is giving to John, that his responsibility is to him. Um, okay, so something that was really awesome um, was to, and, and this is another teaching tip. I would add my own teaching tip. Use chat GPT, okay, to help you in your teaching. So for example, um, I needed to find a quote about light and walking with Christ so that we could include it with our primary um, nightlights that Sister Slade has put together. It's basically a nightlight with a picture of Christ with a vinyl cut out of Jesus Christ. And it's just going to be it's just so beautiful. And she's like, we need a tag to go with it. And I'm like, well, of course she's done all this. Of course I'm going to say like, yes. And I print stuff. So, so, I, but I don't know off the top of my head all the types of scriptures or quotes that there are about life. And so I went to ChatGPT and I was like, okay, well, first of all, trying to search anything in the gospel library sadly is not as efficient as asking ChatGPT. So so anyway, I asked ChatGPT GPT, specifically, I was like, hey, give me 20 scriptures from the Bible's New Testament, or I said scripture references from the Bible's New Testament that speak about light or walking with Christ or both. And can I just tell you, just reading those scriptures was just like a powerful thing. It was like a recap almost of like the whole year of what we've learned. And it was just awesome. But the last scripture I'm going to share with you because we, we don't get to it until later. But this is what we're going to include for the Christmas uh, gifts to the kids. Okay, so it says, Revelation 21:23, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof unquote. Isn't that fantastic? It's like the best quote and it's just like it comes at the end and it's perfect. I wanted something that came from the New Testament because of all of our study and the New Testament is so powerful we just don't even know and I'm so glad that I learned that this year and I'm sad that I didn't do a good job teaching the kids how powerful this, this book is. Now next year, we're going to be reading the Book of Mormon, but but I kind of want to read this again, you know? I know. I, I feel like they missed out. and like, I could have done a better job. And so I'm trying, I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to buy all the books, all the things, and I'm going to try and make sure that they can really learn to read. I know feel like time runs out too quickly. I get that feeling all the time. Like, oh no, we can't do this. And that's that chaos that's in me. And I have to like breathe and know that time's not running out that fast, that there's still time. But, but then I just wish that I would've made more of an effort. You know? It's like the scriptures are so amazing. And the things that I'm learning are so amazing. And my family isn't even around me when I'm learning these things. Anyway, I have to uh, I have to go. I get to pick up some skiers today. Uh, Finn got invited to go skiing with some friends. And it is his, like, third time skiing or something. And so he was a little bit nervous, but also excited, of course. But he's getting to the point where he's getting so big and that he's gonna leave the house and fucking get to have such influence in his life as as I would, and so this year I I needed to be better at scriptures and just didn't didn't do it, but I am going to try harder, and we're gonna to continue to strive to become. And strive to help our children become converted unto the Lord. Okay, um, we are now on Revelation chapter 2, page 2. Okay, um, the Joseph Smith translation for Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, is just one word. And I kind of like looking at it this way. But have you ever thought of people who are um, living on the earth and you're thinking... They're like angels because they've done something for you or somebody else and you're just like, man, no, those peeps are angels, right? Angels on the earth. Anyway. So I think that's kind of what they meant here because or what they what they meant by when they said angel. Because technically the Joseph Smith translation. Means it's servant. So they crossed out the word angel and put servant. And I think that's awesome that a servant of the Lord could be called an angel and vice versa. So when they translated it, they put the word angel instead. And so why not? You know, because I think it's true that We can be the Lord's angels on the earth, you know? Okay, so verse one, let me read that. Unto the servant of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how that thou canst not bear them, which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So he knows, like, the specific stories, and he knows us individually, right? Verse 3, and hast borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Except thou repent, but this thou hast that, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, and then it's like a reference to Lehi's vision, right? Okay, so some commentary here. The Lord will now give specific instruction and words of hope to the church of Ephesus. Notice how specifically the Lord knows each of these different branches of the church. He will address each branch of the seven churches in chapters two and three. He knows them. He knows what is happening among them. He knows their highs and lows. He knows how they are different than the other branches. As you study these next two chapters, consider what the Lord might say to you. First, notice how the Lord knows them and their specific stories about them. He knows that men had come along among them and claimed to hold apostleship, but they were Able to detect their lies. That's great. The Lord also knows their failings. This group had been known for their great amount of love and charity. But that has now been lost. And the Lord tells them to return to their first love. Or their first level of love. Which was higher than it is now. In verse 6 the Lord mentions the Nicolaitans. Also mentioned in verse 15. There are theories of who these people are. But nothing is known for certain. Also notice the similar symbols that are appearing in these ver- in these visions. The tree of life appears here in verse 7, just as it does in Lehi's and Nephi's vision. It is a symbol the Lord often uses to depict inheriting eternal life. Quote from Elder Bruce C. Hafen says, Quote, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. When that day comes, we will be given the quality or nature of life that God himself has, which is called the eternal, godlike life. It is an endowment of pure grace, the greatest endowment of all. And if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life. Which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God? <clears throat> this tree of life is the same tree of which Adam and Eve were not allowed to partake until they had faithfully and obediently endured the trials of mortal experience to the point of offering God a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It is the tree described as growing from the seed of faith Alma describes in Alma 32. It is a tree whose fruit represents the final bestowal of not only all that the father has, but what the father is. No wonder that when Lehi partook of this love of God, which shutteth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, he declared it was the most desirable above all things. And an angel added, Yea, the most joyous to the soul. End quote. Elder Bruce C. Hafen, The Broken Heart. Page 198. Okay. Now we're on verse 8. And unto the servant of the church of Smyrna, write these things, sayeth the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation 10 days be thou faithful unto death and i will give thee a crown of life he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death okay so this part says smyrna is not ephesus they are different cities which are which their own set of with their own set of strengths and problems but the lord knows them At the same time they were experiencing poverty but the lord tells them that thou art rich not in the worldly sense but in the things that are of most value he also knows that there are jews among them but the lord does not consider them to be jews they may have a rich heritage and have been brought up with the law of moses but their natures are not what a jew should be instead he calls them from the synagogue of satan the hebrew word for satan is adversary the Greek equivalent is slanderer. Those Jewish synagogues become centers of adversity and slander for the Christians in the area. In verse 10, the Lord explains that they will have tribulation ten days. This could mean for a short time, or a number ten or the number ten symbolizes completeness, suggesting that they will experience significant persecution. Ooh, that's never good. One story that has been recorded was about a man named Polycarp, a Bishop of the church in Smyrna who lived from AD 69 to 155. Polycarp was a disciple of John and one of the last surviving church leaders who had personally heard the teachings of the apostle and eyewitness of Jesus Christ. (sighs) Because he would not renounce his faith, he was burned at the stake as a martyr. When he was told that he could avoid martyrdom by worshiping the Roman Emperor and cursing Christ, Polycarp replied, quote, for eighty and six years have I been Christ's servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can, can I blaspheme my king that saved me? End quote. That's awesome. And that's found in the Apostolic Fathers, Volume 2. Um, I guess it's in the Lieb Classic Library, Cambridge, Harvard University Press, 1913. In case you guys want to read more about that. Okay, and then verse 12. And to the angel, slash, remember, servant, of the church in Pergamos, write these things, saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Okay, verse 13 says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr. Who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth? But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he he that receiveth it. Okay, so now, some commentary here. Pergamos is not Smyrna, and it is not Ephesus. Pergamos was the center of worship for four prominent pagan cults. The Augustan temple rested on top of a protruding hill that overlooked the region. The temple was of such importance that it was printed on the monetary coins of Pergamos. Notice how Satan will make his seat differently among the cities. In Smyrna, the Jews were the destroyers. Here it is, the pagan religions, and there was a significant pull to participate in pagan worship. Even if you did not, you were constantly surrounded by paganism. Um, here's a quote by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. He says, under Augustus, a temple was built at Pergamus, or at Pergamum, at Pergamum or Pergamus, probably 29 BC, and de- dedicated to the Roman Augustus and Pergamum because the center of the imperial worship in Satan's throne or seat. Thus, Satan dwelt in Pergamus and sat upon the throne in his own temple, and in like manner, Satan dwells in every place. And among every people where he, as the author of sin and the advocate of unrighteousness, finds those who open their hearts to him who believe his doctrines and who follow his ways. And similarly, his reigns on the throne in every house of worship from which those doctrines flow, which damn men and lead them carefully down to hell. End quote. And that's Elder Bruce Armour Conkey. Doctrinal New Testament Commentary 36. So nothing but some fables are known about the details of the faithful martyr Antipas mentioned in verse 13. In verse 14, the doctrine of Balaam refers to the Old Testament story found in Numbers 22-24. John summarizes the story by explaining that the Canaanite king Balak paid the Israelite Balaam for counsel on how to destroy the Israelites. The council was to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. The way to destroy Israel is not by the sword, but by introducing sin and rebellion. This is the story of Pergamus. Additional information on the on the white stone mentioned in verse 17 is found in Doctrine and Covenants 130: 10 to 11. The white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17, will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one. A white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom. Whereon is a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth, receiveth it. The new name is the key word. End quote. Okay. So that is mentioned in Doctrine and Covenants, Section 130, verses 10 10 and 11. Okay, so now we're going to read verse 18. And unto the angel slash servant of the church in Tyatira, write these things, saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, And the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Okay, so that story is in 1 Kings chapter 18 also. Verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So reins and hearts means minds and hearts. Verse 24, but unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter, shall they be broken to shivers, even as I receive of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, so the part where it says, even as I receive of my father, it's like, even as the father has appointed him to do. Okay, so that is the end of chapter two in Revelation. And we'll finish off with these things here. Thyatira, Thyatira, Thyatira was a trade center with all manner of craftsmen, including bakers, potters, tanners, etc. There was a temple there dedicated to Apollo or Ty- Tyrim- Tyrimonos, Tyrim- Tyrimnos, the son of Zeus. After commending the righteousness of the saints in Thyatira, they are warned against eating. Things sacrificed unto idols. Pagan worship often involved animal sacrifice, followed by eating the meat of the sacrifice. Saints were cautioned from eating those sacrifices, not because the meat was compromised or the bat or bad, but because partaking of the sacrifices demonstrated an association with pagan worship. The use of the name Jezebel harkened back to the evil queen that promoted the worship of of. Baal in Elijah's time. Her children are a symbol of those that followed after and promote pagan worship. Again, the Lord mentions Satan in verse 24. The Lord is aware of him and how he works throughout each individual city. And the Lord gives specific counsel to the cities regarding how to remain steadfast, regardless of Satan's various tactics to destroy. In verse 27, the Lord assures the saints that no matter the wickedness that exists in their cities and nations, the Lord will ultimately be victorious. He will rule with a figurative rod of iron. And the nations are like poetry that will be shattered. The morning star is the planet Venus. As the sun rises, the star begins to fade away. Therefore, it is a promise of the coming day. Okay, so now we're on Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 3. Okay, here's some Joseph Smith translation coming on. So sometimes it's a little confusing, so bear with me. Okay, and unto the servant of the church in Sardis, write these things, saith he that hath the seven stars and which are the seven servants of God. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, therefore, and strengthen, servants of God. Remain who are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come unto thee. So they won't know when to expect him. Thou, verse 4, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, so first of all, before I go on to keep reading. I love that he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit sayeth. Um, I think Elder Bednar's actually really great at this and trying to remind people to hear what the Spirit is saying and not exactly what he's saying, but listen to what the Spirit tells you while he's speaking. Um, because while... When Like when we're listening to General Conference, we're listening to what they're saying, but then what is the Spirit trying to teach us from what they're saying? What is the Spirit trying to tell us about what we need to do? What are our next steps and what is our path, right? And so that is what I love about Elder Bednar, always reminding us that it's not the words that he says, but what the words that the Spirit is trying to teach us. And I love that that's what's in the scriptures here. And I think you know that's definitely connected that he that an ear, let him hear what the spirit say it now it says unto the churches but it's what does the spirit tell you you know so i think it's awesome that way so here's the some commentary on that it says the main trade in up from verses six, one through six the main trade in sardis was wooden exports woven textiles from sardis were prized throughout rome the saints in that area understood how garments became or how garments becoming dirty reduced the value of the product keeping clothing clean was a great metaphor for virtuous life in the lord you so the lord used that to help them understand how to prepare to meet him sister elaine s dalton quoted verse 5 when she said to the youth of, quote, to the youth of the noble birthright look into the windows of eternity see yourselves in the lord's holy temples See yourselves living worthy and pure lives. Generations are depending on you. I testify that worthiness is possible because of the redeeming and enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I pray that it may be said of each one of us, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy, end quote. Mm, I like that. And you all know that I love Sister Lena scotton because she served the same time I served as primary president, I mean, as a young woman's president. And I needed a lot of help. <clears throat> okay. Um, and this quote was October, 2006 general conference. And then revelation. Uh, ver, uh, chapter three, verse seven. Okay. Here we go. Seven to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say Him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is, the, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God. And I will write upon him my new name. And he, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, some commentary. Philadelphia was 35 miles away from Sardis and was known for its temples and religious festivals and was known as Little Athens. The phrase key of David in verse 7 comes from Isaiah 22, verse 22, where Isaiah was writing of Eli- Eliakim, who was a minister under King David. Eliakim was given the key to the doors of the temple. In verse 7, the Lord uses the keys as a symbol of himself and his power and authority. The Lord mentions the faithfulness of the saints in Philadelphia and promises to protect them from the evil that is around them. He promises to make them a pillar of the temple of my God. In the temple at Jerusalem, there were two large pillars at the front of the temple. The pillars were named Jachin and Boaz, meaning stability and strength if I pronounced it correctly anyways. (laughs) Okay, quote. This is from Elder Orson Hyde. He says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Do we ever wish to see the time when we can retire from the scenes of everyday life to the temples of God and go no more out? Are we looking for a period of this kind? Yes, when we shall be made pillars in the temple of our God, we know when a pillar is placed in a building. It is placed there to remain to remain. Pillars are not often removed. All pillars are considered permanent. They are not to be taken away, because the removing of them endangers the safety of the building. In order to be made pillars in the temple of our God, what are we to do? We must overcome." End quote. Again, this is from Elder Orson Hyde, Journal of Discourses, one, section 1, 127. Okay, now we're going to read 1417 says and unto the angel of the church of laodiceans write these things saith the these things saith the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of god i know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot i will i would thou were cold or hot so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot i will spew thee out of my mouth because thou sayest i am rich and increase my goodness my goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked okay something that's funny is who likes lukewarm hot cocoa nobody who likes lukewarm soup nobody i actually like lukewarm water (laughs) but nobody likes hot cocoa warm I mean, I guess (laughs) I was about to say Flora likes warm hot cocoa because (laughs) she just chimed in with I like warm hot cocoa. (laughs) And I was going to say she likes it because it doesn't burn her mouth. But when she grows up, no, she's not going to want warm hot cocoa, you know what I mean? So anyways, I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) She just said that because I was about to say that too. Okay, so Laodicea is a seventh city in, uh, that the Lord will address. Laodicea was full of commerce. It was a banking city known for its textiles and had a medical school, which produced an eye salve. The Lord described the Christians in this city as lukewarm and told them that he would rather have them be cold or hot. One who has gone cold might be still full of vigor, though deceived, like Paul or Alma the Younger. But one who chooses to be lukewarm is hard to motivate. They choose to be part of the gospel, but are not all in. Okay. This is a quote from elder Sean Douglas says, quote, doubt is an enemy of faith and joy. Just as warm ocean water is the breeding ground for hurricanes. Ooh, I didn't know that. Doubt is the breeding ground for spiritual hurricanes. Just as belief is a choice. So is doubt. When we choose to doubt, we choose to be acted upon, yielding power to the adversary, thereby leaving us weak and vulnerable. Satan seeks to lead us to this breeding ground of doubt. He seeks to harden our hearts so that we will not believe the breeding ground of doubt can appear inviting because it's seemingly peaceful. Warm waters do not require us to live by every word that proceedeth proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. In such waters, Satan tempts us to relax our spiritual vigilance. That inattention can induce a lack of spiritual conviction, where we are neither cold nor hot. If we are not anchored on Christ, doubt and its allures will lead us away to apathy, where we shall find neither miracles, lasting happiness, nor rest unto our souls. End quote. Ooh, so good. Elder Sean Douglas. October, 2021 general conference. Ooh. And that was, that's good because that was during like right after the COVID. And so I think a lot of people were getting really lax with their conversion. And so it was a good reminder to kind of, to kind of snap out of it. Okay. um, Revelation chapter three, verse 18 to 22 says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. So these are like everlasting riches, okay? That thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, so the commentary here is still addressing Laodicea. The Lord compares their love of goods. Their city is full of the spiritual riches they are denying themselves. They are a banking city full of gold. But the Lord has far better gold, the kind that has been tried in the fire. It is of real and eternal worth. No matter how beautiful and white the clothing offered in Laodicea might be, the Lord's is better and it is eternal. The people were spending so much time and resources to obtain these goods of Laodicea while leaving the true riches available to them unclaimed and on the table. (laughs) In verse 20, the Lord gives them a powerful visual about how he is there waiting to bless them. He is at the door knocking. If they hear his voice and answer the door, they will be eternally blessed. They will find fellowship and be able to sit with him in his throne. The choice is theirs. As it is Christmas time, and we often talk about how the innkeeper had no room in his inn. Note this quote by President Thomas S. Monson. Okay. By the way, my last, the last time I shared a, shared my testimony on December, um, for the, what was it, December 1st? I can't remember, but, or third, who knows what day it was, but the, in December, uh, I said that I know President Thomas S. Monson's a prophet, and then I was like, wait, Thomas, I'm like, not Thomas S. Monson right now, but (laughs) President Russell M. Nelson. Anyway, it was just kind of funny because I read quotes from all the prophets, right? And so it's kind of confusing, but I do miss him. Anyway, so here's his quote. He says, quote, he taught us how to pray. He taught us how to serve. He taught us how to live. His life is a legacy of love. The sick he healed, the downtrodden he lifted, the sinner he saved. The time came when he stood alone. Some apostles doubted, one betrayed him. The Roman soldiers, soldiers pierced his side. The angry mob took his life. There yet rings from Golgotha's hill his compassionate words Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No room in the inn was not a singular expression of rejection, just the first. Yet he invites you and me to receive him. Behold I stand at the door and knock, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to come into him, and will sup with him, and be with me. End quote. Mm. Love that. It's a good reminder, you know, and I love that. He said that no room in the inn was not a singular expression of rejection. It was just the first one. What are the many ways that we reject the savior in our lives? I mean, we do it every day. Even I do as I'm reading this pretty sure I could have done this a lot earlier than right now. So anyways, just wanted to throw that out there for you. Okay. Revelation chapter four, after I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit and beheld a throne. Or, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and none sat on the throne. So the principle here is glory of heaven. And the vision continues. In chapter 4, John sees the throne of God. Again, John is trying to describe things that are indescribable and incomprehensible. And symbols are a good way to capture the majesty of God's throne. John sees into heaven and sees God upon his throne. Again, he hears a voice of a trumpet. Trumpets announce and call people to action or to a certain event. Kind of like if you're at girls camp or scout camp and they sound the trumpet. It scares you. It like wakes you up for real. You're like, okay, fine. Stop doing the trumpet. I will wake up, you know? So I remember that. So now John's attention is being taken to another matter to be revealed. Does God sit on the throne in heaven? It doesn't matter. It is the symbol that we are to notice that it is, that is now John is teaching, is, is how John is teaching us. Or that is what the vision was teaching him. Thrones are symbols of power and authority. A man may sit upon a throne on the earth, but it will only be for a certain jurisdiction for a certain period of time. But who would sit upon the throne of heaven? God who has all power and all authority. Okay, verse three. And he that sat was looked, wait, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Okay, so like a diamond maybe? Okay. So verse three, commentary says, quote, in striving to record the, for mortal comprehension the grandeur, glory, and beauty of the Almighty of Almighties, John likens his appearance to precious and semi precious stones. The jasper mentioned is believed by commentators to be a diamond, unquote. Ezekiel also used the rainbow to describe God. He taught that just as you would look into a stormy sky and see the majesty of a rainbow. This is like seeing the glory of the Lord. Oh, well, that's cool. Okay, verse 4. And in the midst of the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Okay, Doctrine and Covenants 77.5 explains that these twenty-four elders were elders who had been faithful faithful. In the work of min- the ministry, and were dead, who belonged to the seven churches, and were then in the paradise of elder of God, paradise of God. Elder Pakanki said, "This quote, it is worthy of note that these righteous persons who were sitting with God on His throne were are elders, not seventies, not high priests, not patriarchs, not apostles, but elders. Indeed, every elder who magnifies his calling as an elder has the." Immutable promise of the father guaranteed by his personal oath that he shall gain all that the father hath, which is eternal life, which is Godhood, which is to sit with him on his throne, end quote. Nice. Okay, verse five. So We're going to do these first verse five verses, I guess. And out of the throne proceeded the lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven servants of God. Okay. So verse five, how is John John to describe the glory and power of that which is in heaven? He uses things that we as mortals understand to be powerful, like lightnings and thunderings. Okay, verses six and seven. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne... Were four and twenty elders, and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes, before and behind. And first, and the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a cat, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Okay, so Doctrine and Covenants 77:1 explains that the sea of glass is the earth in its sanctified, immortal, and eternal state and 77 two to four teaches that the four beasts are figurative but do represent individual beasts eyes are a symbol of light truth and knowledge wings are a sign of power right because who didn't who doesn't want to fly everybody wants to fly literally that's one of the superpowers people wish they had okay now verses 8 to 11 and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Okay, so then we have a quote, it says, from Elder Bruce Armikonki as well. It says, we are here, no, sorry, we here find the four beasts and the four and twenty elders giving glory and honor to the Father because he created them. Were it not for him, they would not be. End quote. Mm, I love it. I think it's the same with us, you know? Okay, and then we are on Revelation chapter 5, and it's 1 to 14, and then we're done. So we actually were able to cover the whole thing. Here we go. I And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. Okay, so some commentary on this is still gazing upon God's throne. John will now see a vision of the history of the world and Jesus's role in the salvation of all mankind. It starts with a book that God is holding in his hand. And this book contains the story of God's children upon the earth and how they would how they would be saved Ancient books were scrolls, and if it was an important or authorized document, it would uh, often be sealed with a wax seal. A king or other person would commonly have a signet ring that had their official seal designed into it. And when the wax was dripped onto the document, they would press their ring into the seal. Only the person who was authorized to view the document could break the seal. This particular book had seven seals that needed to be opened one at a time. The seals, are given. the seals here give us insight into what it means to be sealed in the temple. The Encyclopedia of Mormonism explains signets and seals have been used from early antiquity to certify authority. For Latter-day Saints, the ultimate sealing power is the priesthood power given to authorized servants of the Lord to perform certain acts on earth and have them recognized or sealed or validated in heaven. They believe it is the authority the Lord Jesus Christ described when he said, Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom and of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that's found in Matthew 16, verse 19. Okay. So now we're going to keep going. Verse 3. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Okay, so says, John sees this book and realizes the importance of it. And when he realizes that no one in heaven Nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither look thereon. He wept. He wept much. This moment is teaching John that no one but Jesus Christ was worthy and able to fulfill God's plan. No one else in heaven or on earth or under the earth, people who have already lived, could open this book. As John weeps, one of the elders tells him that there is one who is worthy to open the book. And the angel calls Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. The tribe of Judah had the symbol of a lion, a symbol of strength and courage. And it was a prophecy that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah and through the specific family of David. There are many that were the tribe of Judah, but the line of David within Judah was the royal line. Mary and Joseph were both within this line. Although Joseph was not Jesus' literal father in the Jews, the father's line would have mattered. And according to James E. Talmadge, quote, he says, had Judah been a free and independent nation ruled by her rightful sovereign, Joseph the carpenter would have been her crowned king and his lawful successor to the throne would have been Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Mm. End quote. That is awesome. I just got chills just listening to that. Usually that means it's true. Jesus, being called the lion of the tribe of Judah, is calling him the lion of the lions or the king of kings. He is the ultimate strength, leadership and courage. Amazing. Okay, so verse six. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having twelve horns and twelve eyes, which are the twelve servants of God, sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamp, having every one of them harps and golden vials, full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. Okay, so. Commentary. John then sees Jesus Christ come and take the book out of God's hands. Jesus, his, Jesus knows his role and is willing to fulfill it. And this vision Jesus represented by a most peculiar peculiar lamb. It is a lamb that had been slain, yet he, ha- he is standing. John would have understood this since he would have grown up sacrificing lambs in similitude of the Messiah. The lamb also had 12 horns and 12 eyes. And see the Joseph Smith translation, which changes the numbers from seven to 12. I read it as 12 because it had their correction there. Horns. On an animal are a symbol of power and strength. For example, the ancient Israelites would put horns on the corners of their altars. Eyes symbolized light and knowledge. If we look at this almost like an abstract piece of art, it makes more sense. You can paint the literal depiction or a symbolic one. And here is a symbolic. Here it is symbolic. Instead of seeing Jesus, John sees a lamb covered in horns and eyes. Although strange, it communicates exactly who is Who this person is and what kind of power, light, and knowledge he holds. The number 12 symbolizes divine government and priesthood. Okay, so verse 11 to 14 is our last little section here. And then we'll be done with this week's. Okay, and I behold and I heard, I beheld and I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. (laughs) It seems like a really big number. Uh, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, amen. And the four and 20 elders fell down and worshiped him that lived forever and ever. So, just kind of means that everyone understood who Jesus was, and is. Okay, so then Revelation. So then this is the commentary in verse eleven. The number used by John is ten thousand times ten thousand. Is not intended to be multiplied. It is intended to convey that the number worshiping is vast and innumerable, and all these people in heaven knew exactly who Jesus was, and what He would do for them. And this is from Joseph Smith, quote, says, I suppose John saw beings there of a thousand forms that had been saved for the, from 10,000 times 10,000 earths like this, strange beasts of which we have no conception. All might, to be, all might be seen in heaven. The grand secret was to show John that there was in heaven. Wait, the grand secret was to show John what there was in heaven John learned that God glorified himself by saving all that his hands had made, whether beasts, fowls, fishes or men, he will glorify himself with them End quote ooh also he rhymed um, that's amazing and I think it's I think it's special to know that beasts, fowls and fishes or men so that just means that our beloved pets will also be included. Could you just imagine this you getting all excited to see Jesus? That would be so cool. <laughs> I guess both of our she almost. That would be the coolest. Anyways, okay. Thanks for showing up, reading scriptures with me. And I'll see you in the next section. Um, we'll be reading Revelation chapter 6 and continue from there. I love you. Bye.